This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, what happens when we die? Now, we usually record Bigger Questions before a live audience in Melbourne's CBD, but we weren't able to get our guest before a live audience today. My guest today is Dr. Mark Stevens. Mark is a lecturer in Biblical and Integrative Studies at Excelsior College in Sydney. He has a PhD in Ancient History from Macquarie University, where he studied cosmic eschatology in the Book of Revelation. And he joins me now, Mark. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Great to be here. It's terrific. Now, cosmic eschatology. Now, you spent several years of your life studying it, but what does it mean? Mm, Sounds like a disease. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cosmic eschatology is a cosmic just to do with the world or the universe. Eschatology has to do with how things end up. So eschatos in Greek just means last things. So eschatology pertains to everything that ends up. Where does history end up? Where does the world end up? Where do we end up? Okay, right. So it's looking to the future, obviously. Indeed. Yeah. The eternal future, nearly always. Okay, right. Now, so eschatology is not a particularly common word. No. Are you able to drop the word in at parties or at functions that you not if you want to have any friends by the end of it. So, uh, no, it's not a word that people people look at you strangely when you use it, unless you're in kind of Christian theological circles, and right, then okay. usually those people are kind of strange and awkward often. So, um, uh, yeah, it's 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 a word that's got a great meaning, but it's yeah. uh, it's one of those you know uh, I call them you know one hundred dollar words. You know, you rarely have a hundred dollar note in your in your wallet, and occasionally you bring it out. You know, it's one of those kinds of words. Okay, and it's worth a lot of points in Scrabble. It as is well. worth a lot of points in Scrabble. You get a pretty good triple word score or something. Yeah, absolutely. I think eschatology. So eschatology, what what drove your interest in this topic? Uh, A couple of things. So as a young believer, uh, it was important to me to actually know the truth about Christianity. And so therefore, eschatology was important because the central claims of the Christian gospel is that it has a relevance not only for the present, but the eternal future. Right. So that really mattered. Secondly, I saw a lot of Christians around me who had views of how the world ended up that changed the way they live in the present in a really unhelpful way. So they had kind of a vision that the world was going to be torn apart and annihilated in in particular ways. And that didn't seem to match up with what I saw unfolding in the Bible. Mm. Uh, And so those two things together, both the desire to see, is it really true what it makes in terms of claims about eternity? And is it also a good eternity? Yeah. Both matched up as, I need to study this and actually figure out how this all fits together. Yeah. And so you've obviously spent some time thinking about it. I have. Far too many years. My (laughs) wife will tell you. (laughs) So do you think it matters then what we believe about the future? Yes, profoundly. Yeah, in what way? Because I think we all live our lives in terms of narrative, mm-hmm. both past, present, and future. And so we always are thinking about where we're going. We're yeah. always configuring and orienting our present behavior in light of what we think is going to happen in the future. And sometimes mm. that's a very immediate future. But sometimes in our heart of hearts, there's also a framework that is the ultimate future, the yeah. real end of everything. Right, okay. And that obviously that shapes and drives Absolutely. anyone, whether or not they're a Christian believer or change not. Change the way the story ends, you change the way the present is lived. Well, today's big question is about what happens after we die. Obviously, it's a future mm-hmm. event for everyone listening to this. Uh, <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> yeah. um, now, throughout the centuries, uh, people have thought about this quite differently. Now, yeah. as a, someone with a background in history, yep. so what are the different ways in which people have thought about what happens after you die? There's lots of different ways, and if you wanted to splice and dice it, you could go forever. Yep. But 
probably the, the, the first category would be a kind of spiritual view of existence, the idea that the physical is temporary but the spiritual is eternal. Right. There's all sorts of different variations of that, but we see that in Greek philosophy in the ancient world, people like Plato. We see that going all the way through to the present day in a lot of New Age religion. Mm-hmm. Um, people will talk often at funerals about their spirit is looking down upon us, so mm. they become an angel in heaven or some sort of ghost-like, wispy kind of, I'm going to sit on the clouds existence. A bit like Casper the Ghost. Casper the Friendly Ghost is my eternity. And a lot of Christians, by the way, probably think something more like that sometimes. Right, okay. Secondly, there's probably a view that's pretty common these days, but it's been common throughout the centuries, which is that there's nothing in the yeah. afterlife. So in the ancient world, there was, a, there was a popular headstone that was throughout ancient Rome, which basically summarized, said this, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. And so that was the summary of their life. Really? That was um, a, in the Roman times? In the Roman times, it was an abbreviated headstone or abbreviated kind of funerary monument. I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. That is, my temporary life is over and the worms are eating me. And so there'd be numerous people in the present day, many, many, many people in the present day who would say, this is it. Mm. And then when you hit the wall and you die, that's it. There's no consciousness. There's no nothing. You're not around to even think about an afterlife. There is no afterlife. Very, very common. Yeah. Well, certainly common today. I mean, even like uh, it's particularly common amongst scientific circles, for example, um, cosmologist and physics professor Sean Carroll says that there's no way within the laws of physics to allow for the information stored in our brains to persist after we die. So he concludes that there's clearly no way for the soul to survive death. Now, so given this view of physics, I mean, is it more reasonable then to believe that nothing happens after you die? Uh it's reasonable if the world is a closed system. Yes. That is to say, if the world is as we see it now and there's no other interventions possible in it, then I understand why a physics prof or a biology prof is going to say the system's going to run down. But Christians don't believe in a closed system. They believe in a world that's capable of having God intervene and act within it. Yep. And so just as Christians attribute God's energy and uh, agency to creation and his sustenance of the world. So we see that Christians don't think that we just inherently become immortal, that right. like it's just sort of like the next stage we go on to. It's actually something that God raises people from mm. the dead. So it really depends upon your view of the system, so to speak. So mm. if you assume that there's nothing beyond what we can see, taste and touch, then... absolutely. Then you may as well have that Roman headstone. Absolutely, as your uh, for your makes a lot of sense to me. So was that was that belief particularly common in the ancient world that you kind of die, you rot? Uh, it was in particular common amongst the lower classes. Uh, the upper classes tended to be the people who who had a kind of afterlife view, um, but in the main, it was common partly because Roman visions of immortality are the immortality of your name. So right. that, that is your reputation is what carries on, not so much your existence. But there are examples of Roman immortality, the notion of the Elysian fields and all these kinds of things. But, yeah, quite common. Common enough that you've got an abbreviated type of, type of headstone. What about gladiator? I mean, that depicted some sort of sense of an afterlife. That's like... an Elysian fields type um, Right, okay, because uh, it image. actually was in fields. At the yes. Uh, so that, I mean, I remember watching that and kind of going, if people were to draw from that, that that's what everybody thought then that would be a false false judgment. Right, there was okay. a diversity of views in the ancient Roman world, but they didn't necessarily have a vision of immortality 
as the most popular form. Mm, okay. So we've got the sort of this Casper the Ghost sort of style. We've got this you die, you rot version. What other options were there for the ancient in, in the world that people have thought about what happens after you die? Well, the major option is that we're going to be talking about today is, is the notion of bodily resurrection, which is something that particularly comes through the Jewish uh, theology yep. of the ancient world prior to Christ and then is given a definitive stamp by the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when we're talking about resurrection, it's really important we understand because a lot of people want to use the language of resurrection to describe visions of the afterlife in general. Right. Yeah. So any type of experience after life can be put under the heading resurrection. Yeah. That's not how Jews use the term. Yeah. They use the term to refer to experiencing a re-embodiment. Yeah. A transformed embodiment, but a re-embodiment. So it was a bodily vision of the future that was in Judaism, and then Christianity takes that and gives it a definitive stamp because the person of Jesus is actually held to have resurrected in the middle of history. Right, yeah. So you've got really three options. You've got this kind of spiritual existence, you've got this no existence, mm. or you've got a bodily existence. Mm-hmm. How do we work out which one's right? Well, that is the $64 million question. Yeah. So really... You've got to ask the question, how do people make these claims? And some people are kind of philosophizing them out in their heads and some people are, are, are just simply drawing the conclusions from the physics. Yep. Christians make their claim with regard to resurrection because there's a person who's genuinely experienced death and come out of it the other side in a transformed embodiment. Yeah. So that's why Jesus is central to the Christian claims of anything and in particular resurrection, because the claim is it all hangs on the person of Jesus. Mm. You need to look at Jesus. Is Jesus experiencing that transformed re-embodiment that we claim is resurrection? If he is, then resurrection is true and real. If he isn't, then we have to go with some other option. So what convinces you then that this is true and real? What convinces me that it's true and real is to basically ask what best explains the data that we have. Yeah. Uh, and there's all sorts of different data. If you're talking about the person of Jesus, he is a figure within history. He is someone who is claimed to have genuinely walked this earth, to have died a real death, and to have been raised from the dead in a physical way. And therefore, I need to look at the data and ask the question, does the data match up with that happening? Now, I can't as a historian, and this is something that's true about history, I can't prove that in the sense of put it in a test tube, shake it, if it turns blue, Jesus rose from the dead. Mm. That's not how history works. What history tries to do is offer the best explanation of all the puzzle pieces we've got. That's the case with any history, isn't it? Absolutely. Whether you're talking about Caesar crossing the Rubicon, whether you're talking about uh, Hitler invading Poland, whether you're talking about Jesus rising from the dead, Hitler is about putting the pieces together. Different historical claims have different amounts of puzzle pieces, yep. but that's what we're trying to do as historians, the best explanation of all the data. Mm. So what's the best the puzzle pieces that fit together for you for, for Jesus' resurrection? The puzzle pieces that fit with me with regards to the person of Jesus is uh, the fact that we have solid claims that he lived on this earth, yep. and so the historically reliable witnesses of the New Testament. Uh, secondly, the claim that was made by so many of his followers afterwards that he was raised from the dead. That is to say, it becomes a very solid claim very quickly. But why couldn't it just be the disciples just made it up? That's true. So therefore, we've got to ask, why would they have made it up? Now, the question of why would they have made it up, we've got to ask the question, how likely is that? So for example, is this a claim that they're likely to have made up? There was no precedent for saying this kind of thing. There had been people who claimed to be the Messiah beforehand. And when they die, 
the movement dies with them. That is to say, it's not normal to sit there and go, oh, by the way, this is exactly what we were expecting. In fact, quite the opposite. It should have been the end of the movement. And it was genuinely surprising to them so that when they're telling the story of Jesus a little later on, they actually admit, we didn't know this was going to happen. We weren't entirely sure that this was how the story would end. This genuinely surprised us too to realize that God was going to raise Jesus from the dead and start the resurrection in the middle of history. Because mm. the timing's important there, isn't it? The, it is. When, when this happens. So why is that important? Because Jews, which is where Christianity comes from, Judaism, Jewish theology about the resurrection always thought that the resurrection would happen at the end of time and everybody would be raised at the same point in time. So there was a belief that God would raise his people from the dead and that that would be the point at which death would end and the world would enter into a new age, what they called the age to come. But there was no thought that that age to come would happen because someone would come in advance of the end and actually be raised from the dead in the middle of history. Mm. And that's the new and exciting claim that Christianity makes, that the way that that resurrection at the end happens is by someone coming in advance, the Messiah, to actually die and rise in our place in the middle of history. That's really not Uh, a present feature of Jewish theology prior to Jesus. Mm. And the only way that historically I feel like I can explain it is that something happened to give people that belief. That is, they weren't thinking in these preordained categories. Something happened to make them go, now we've got to explain what's happened. Mm. And that was obviously convincing to you. That's convincing to me. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other reasons. Existentially, I feel like... uh, Uh, that I am made not just for a temporary existence, but for an eternal existence. That's a subjective claim, I realise. But that kind of It's an eschatological claim as well. It is, absolutely. You're you're nailing it. (laughs) Just (laughs) don't bring it up at dinner parties. (laughs) Depends on who's coming for dinner, I suppose. Yeah. So maybe tell us a bit more about your story then. So obviously this was important for you, but tell us about your particular story. What was the, the beginning of your beginning, Mark's beginning? My story begins with a a loving Christian family. I grew up uh, as a suburban kid in suburban Sydney. Uh, Went to church as a kid and... Did you like it? Not hugely. Uh, As in, I liked the morals. I actually was a good kid. I was a goody two-shoes kid. But I I didn't feel any compulsion to believe it or or base my life around it in in any strong way. It was a moral framework, but it wasn't a relationship with God. It wasn't a passion of mine. When I got to high school, uh, I was a smart kid, and gradually I just kind of drifted away from church for a few years. I had some friends who were then going to another church, and so I started going to that. But again, it wasn't really landing for me. What what wasn't landing for you? It... (laughs) The central claims of Christianity weren't claims that um, made their claim on my heart. So uh, the center of Christianity is that God has reached out to us in the person of Jesus to forgive our sins. Well, basically, I thought I was so awesome that I didn't need to have my (laughs) sins forgiven. Like, I mean, it it wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't need to confess anything. And it was only when I actually started doing enough stupid things to have something to confess that I actually became a Christian because it was at that point when I got caught stealing, I got caught shoplifting. Um, the good Christian kid. The good Christian kid got caught shoplifting, which is, you know, one of the ways I like to say it is, you know, I, I was a shoplifter, but I wasn't very good at it. And, and you know, <laughs> and so I remember my mum coming into me after I got caught stealing and 
kind of, you know, that was the end of my good kid reputation. Yeah. And I had to kind of, uh, at the time, there was a song by Jane's Addiction called Being Caught Stealing. And I remember being on a school bus and people singing that to me after I got caught shoplifting. You know, there's nothing like social shame. No, no. no. But um, that was the point at which it, it became real to me yeah. in the sense that what this was offering in terms of freedom and forgiveness actually meant something to me. So that was a kind of if people would like the existential or the relational aspect to it. But then what happened afterwards, I went to a selective high school in, in New South Wales, so yeah. where the smart kids kind of got corralled together to be smart together. Okay, sure. And so I was always going to have to ask the question, not only is this real in terms of feelings and relationship, but is this real in terms of truth? Mm. And so in the years afterwards then, I did... I. I I basically spent the next kind of 10 years of my life trying to throw my faith against the wall, yeah. trying to work out if it's true. So at high school, that meant I tried to investigate all the history and whatever else I could find that could kind of tear apart the faith. And when I went to uni and eventually ended up in an arts degree with philosophy and ancient history, I tried to take every course that could destroy my faith. Right. And did it? No. <laughs> and I actually out. found that profoundly helpful, though, as an experience. Mm. So I took philosophy of religion. I mm. took philosophy of science. I took the New Testament as a historical document. I took as many courses as possible because my conviction was if it's not true, it's not worth believing in. Mm. And if I am going to give my life away to something, it has to have a bedrock of truth that can withstand the substantial questions that people ask. And so I really enjoyed those times. I really enjoyed working together with my Macquarie Uni philosophy and history lecturers. The joy was I got good marks because they knew I wasn't copying them because right. I was clearly saying something different than what they were saying. But what I had to do was I had to respect what they said and show that I understood their claims before I tried to make any counterclaims. Mm. So it was a really, really positive experience. Mm. Well, thank you. And that's great to hear your, your story. Mm. Now, a book of the Bible called 1 Thessalonians, which was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was mm -hmm. one of the early church leaders. Now, he dealt with this big question where he wrote in chapter 4, he said, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, Mark, do you think he's using sleep here as a way of describing death or dying? I think he is. He's using sleep in this sense that he knows there's an eternity for those people who've died believing in Jesus. And so therefore, like sleep is a temporary state where we're kind of out of it and then we're not, uh, he wants to use that metaphor to describe our waiting to inherit eternal life. Mm. So instead of seeing death as the end... He wants to see death as in under some sort of metaphorical way of it's temporary. Mm. Now, how much we want to read into what does sleep feel like and look like in that in-between stage, he's, he's basically trying to say death is not the end. So those who live a long time, are they insomniacs? <laughs> I, I guess you could say that. <laughs> uh, I mean, Paul goes on to talk in that very passage about the fact that if you happen to live till the point where Jesus comes back and you haven't yet died, well you'll just kind of fast forward to the end right. of the process. Yeah, anyhow. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Now, he also talks in that, it's just something quite controversial, is that he says that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Is there really no hope in the alternatives? Uh, from my perspective, yes. Now, others might want to counter that claim. And sure. They're entitled to be able to defend their point of view. But for me, I don't see any hope unless there is someone who can deal with death. And mm. so death in the Bible is an enemy. 
sometimes we talk about death in ways that kind of sanitize it. Mm. You know, um, we're just passing over and we're just passing through and, you know, the, the sweet slumbers of death or something like that. The Bible doesn't see it like that. Death is an enemy. Death mm. is a death is an intrusion. Death is wrong. And so there's a great Dylan Thomas poem about rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light, you know, and that's the Bible's perspective, mm. that we don't kind of just drift off. I remember reading Wuthering Heights once by um, by Emily Bronte, and it's got the most beautiful scenes of death in it, like right. as in everybody dies <laughs> in such sweet and peaceful ways. <laughs> But in the end, that's not how the Bible sees death. And so therefore, hope has to be ballsy. Mm-hmm. That is to say, you've got to deal with death. You don't just kind of drift through it. You've got to have some, it's an enemy that's got to be defeated. And so therefore, I don't have any hope in the face of death unless I know that there is someone who has fought death and won. What if you're wrong, though? What if I'm wrong about Jesus, about the resurrection being the best option of after we die? Well, that's the thing we've got to ask about Jesus in any case. That is, if I'm wrong, then I feel like I have no hope. In fact, Paul in the scriptures says, uh, if, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Mm. That is to say, Paul was very clear, and I'm very clear, that I've bet my life on the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. And if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then I need to live a completely different life. Mm. The, the, the whole shape and frame of the story um, is completely different. As you mentioned before, the, the, your view of the end affects what you do and how, Absolutely. You, how you live now. And it's one of those moments. I mean, I don't know if you've ever played the game of kind of like trying to watch a movie but missing out scenes 1 and 21 on the DVD <laughs> and kind of seeing how much does it reshape the narrative? You yeah. know, how much does it actually change? Sometimes it mightn't change it that much, but I think sometimes it profoundly will change it if you yeah. don't see the opening scenes and the ending scenes. That's right. Luke Skywalker might not defeat Absolutely. the, the Death yeah. Star. And you kind of yeah. think, well, did they win? Like, yes. I just don't know. Yeah. Now, the Apostle Paul goes on and says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Mm. So what's he saying here? He's basically saying that when we believe in Jesus, that uh, he's actually going to connect us to him in some way. Yes, that's how the Bible wants to describe faith in Christ, that we unite with Christ, which means his story becomes our story. So as he died and rose again, so we die to sin, and then we'll be raised from death, through him. Now, there's a sense in which that's already begun, that we already feel within ourselves we are changed people and therefore our sins have been forgiven and already we're starting to be people who are more and more obedient to God. But there is this sense in which uh, somebody once described it, the body is the lagging indicator in salvation. You know, For all the economists out there, you know, sometimes you have a turnaround in the economy but there's a lagging indicator, something that doesn't change. It might be unemployment or it might be inflation or something like that. Okay, well, the body is the lagging indicator in salvation, which is to say what's already started to happen within us because we're united with Christ will eventually impact all of us, including our body. So where you're going affects what you do now. Absolutely. Yeah. So it also goes on to say, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. I mean, but isn't this whole idea of resurrection dying such a just wishful thinking? I mean, as a famous scientist and atheist, Carl Sagan, once says, he said, I would love to believe that when I die, I will live again, that some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue. But as much as I want to believe that, and despite the ancient and worldwide cultural traditions that assert an afterlife, I know of nothing to suggest that it is more than wishful thinking. Hmm. How do you respond? 
Well, in one sense, I agree with Carl in this sense that if we discount the testimony of Jesus, I'm kind of with him out there, kind of going, there's nothing but darkness, there's a grave, there's a headstone. I can't really see the physical explanation. Uh, So Carl's quote to me reminds me of the centrality of the person of Jesus and investigating him because... Yes, I don't agree with this sentimental notion that there just must be something more because intuitively I can kind of figure that out. There must be something more because the claims of Christ have demonstrated that something more. And the question I'd want to ask Carl, who's now no longer with us, but is have you seriously checked out the claims of Christ? Uh, Wishful thinking has a particular kind of hue about it and is resistant to questions. That is to say, doesn't like questions. What I like about the Christian faith is it invites questions, Mm. hence a program like this. Bigger questions, that's right, yeah. So what makes the Christian vision of the future attractive now? I think everybody wants the world to change. That is to say, you look at the political movements, you look at the the things that energise us that really make a difference rather than just making money and whatever else. The things that energise us is to believe that we can change the world and make it more just, that we can enable human flourishing, that we can take what we see now, which is beautiful yet broken, and move it towards greater beauty, greater goodness, greater flourishing. But there doesn't seem to be any guarantee that that's going to happen. The world seems to take two steps forward, three steps back sometimes. And so even though we make progress, we take steps back. Things don't get eliminated. And so what I find is the great joy in the Christian faith is that it actually plants a vision of a true and solid hope that says, you know what? There is a world of justice. There is a world of beauty. There is a world where creation is everything it should be. And as you work to enable that to happen, as you work in a way that reflects those kinds of values, that actual world is there and will happen. And so you need not give up on living in that way and facing in that direction because that world is coming. And so that brings me great delight. It means in the midst of the most profound despair, I know this isn't the end. And it means in the midst of the greatest joys, I don't try and sit there and go, right, heaven has arrived, but sit there and go, no, 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 there's more to be done. And in light of that day, it gives me such a framework for understanding exactly how to make sense of this confusing, sometimes joyous, sometimes painful present. Mm. So Mark, what happens when we die? Well, what happens when we die depends upon how we respond to Jesus. I think for those of us who are united to Christ, what ultimately happens when we die is we inherit an eternity that is an experience like this world, but taken to the best that it could ever possibly be. It's creation reaching its goal. What happens when we die if we don't know Jesus is that we experience uh, judgment. And we uh, don't know the life-giving power that his resurrection can bring and all that he has in store. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to this big question. What happens when we die? From 1 Thessalonians 4.14 For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Dr. Mark Stevens. Thank you. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.